0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A few years back, Exxon found oil off the coast of Guyana. Our correspondent visits to see how a gusher of petrodollars might change this small anglophone country on South America's northern coast. And with their pouches and beady eyes, koalas rank among the world's most recognizable creatures. But they're also under threat from a well-known sexually transmitted disease spreading rampantly among the already beleaguered wild population. First up, though... It's election time in the Philippines. This weekend is the last push of campaigning before voters head to the polls on Monday. Philippine law restricts presidents to a single six-year term. So at stake is who will succeed the fiery populist incumbent, Rodrigo Duterte. The favorite... Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos has had a surprisingly muted
1: campaign. But
0: his low-key demeanor seems to have worked. He's likely to win on Monday, cementing a return to power for one of the country's most controversial families.
1: Aren't an earth-shattering surprise as some sort of unprecedented polling error? Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos will win the Philippine election on Monday, May 9th, by a landslide.
0: Leo Marani is The Economist's Asia editor.
1: So the name Bongbong, which is a great name, if you don't focus on that part of his name, but you focus on the rest of it, which is Ferdinand Marcos, should tell you that he's the son of the dictator of the same name who ruled the Philippines for about
0: 20 years. And what is he running on? What's the substance of his campaign been? What are his policy promises?
1: That's a good question, John. There are none. Bongbong has been very careful to not make any real promises, he hasn't appeared in any television debates. He doesn't really give interviews, except, you know, the, the very occasional one to extremely friendly press. What he's running on is this very airy-fairy slogan of unity, which, you know, who can be against that? It's very hard to argue with. It's kind of astonishing, really, because the man has been in public life for 30 years. He became a congressman in 1992 and has been you know in various offices since then. Congressman, senator... But he really doesn't have very much of a record to show for it.
0: So why is he running for president?
1: A common reason to run for president is the power is a means to an end. It is a way to transform society, to implement deep structural changes, to fix deep-rooted problems. Or, you know, very often it's just to plunder the treasury. None of these appear to be the case with Bongbong Marcos. The reason he's running for president is so that a man named Ferdinand Marcos goes back into the presidential palace and, in effect, redeems the father's name.
0: And tell me about that redemption. What is he redeeming it from?
1: The last time there was a Ferdinand Marcos in the Malacañang, as the presidential palace is known, was in February 1986. On the 25th of that month, Ferdinand Marcos and his family were run out of the country as enormous street protests, escalated outside in manila and as he lost the support of the army and the police and the americans urged him to as the famous quote goes cut and cut clean
0: perhaps the most remarkable thing is the atmosphere here despite the skirmishing the mood is not one of anger these people are behaving as if they know they've won
1: during his reign apart from the usual sort of trampling of civil liberties and political rights and all of that sort of thing Thousands of people were killed, tens of thousands were jailed or tortured, and billions upon billions of public money was looted. The most famous, which lots of people know about, the most famous example of this is Imelda Marcos, that's his wife. Her shoe collection, when the Marcoses fled, they found thousands upon thousands of pairs of shoes that belonged to her. And that was very much just the tip of the iceberg. When they left, I mean, the Americans recorded this because, you know, they came into America and had to clear customs. They showed up with... Some two dozen suitcases full of cash and at least another two dozen bars of gold. And they also have sort of money squirreled away all over the world. Um, unsurprisingly, people are not so crazy about the idea of another man called Ferdinand Marcos in the presidential palace.
0: But he still seems on the brink of victory. How did he manage to pull off this reversal of fortunes for his family?
1: So the important thing to remember is that the polls would show that he commands more than 50% of the vote, and has done so uh, consistently, is because those are supporters both of the Marcos family and of the Duterte family. His vice president will be Sarah Duterte, who's the daughter of Rodrigo Duterte, the well-known, outgoing, and rather outspoken president. She's running on a separate ticket, but the pair of them together command a huge majority in the polls, well over 50% each. Um, So that's one thing. But the second thing is much more interesting. The Marcoses, they returned to the Philippines in 1991, ostensibly to face corruption charges. But Bongbong, as I said, became a congressman. And so over the past 30 years, the family has done everything it can to get back into positions of power. And then simultaneously, this idea has taken hold over the last 30 odd years that the Ferdinand Marcos' era was this sort of golden era for the Philippines, a period of stability, of high economic growth, of lots and lots of new infrastructure. And that idea, I should say, is not some sort of organic idea. It's been helped along by
0: quite sophisticated social media and YouTube campaigns. So the story you're telling is that of one family's attempt to rehabilitate its name. And I appreciate that he hasn't been terribly heavy on the policy on the campaign trail. But people must have some idea of what he's going to do, what he wants to do when he gets into office, right?
1: Yeah, so if you speak to people in the know in Manila, most people seem to believe that he will follow the example of his predecessor and be mostly hands-off of the economy, appoint some extremely competent and respected technocrat and allow that person to run the economy and keep things chugging along nicely. Um, This is important because the Philippines has 110 million people. It's the second biggest country in Southeast Asia. And of those 110 million people, about a quarter cannot afford enough food or the basic necessities of life. Uh, The second area is foreign policy. Here, Marcos is widely thought to be pro-China. He's also thought to be uh, China's preferred candidate. It's also the case that the Philippines has an ongoing territorial dispute with China, which, you know, we'll have to see how Marcos deals with that.
0: How do you think the Philippines will react to having two family dynasties in power at once?
1: By and large, so generally speaking, they'll be pretty relaxed about it. But there is a really strong and passionate base for Marcos's main rival, who's called Lenny Robredo. <laughs> She's actually the current vice president. And they would be extremely unhappy at the thought of a Ferdinand Marcos in Malacañang. There have been attempts to disqualify Marcos from even running on the basis that he's been previously convicted of not paying his taxes. That's still running its way through the Commission on Elections, which almost certainly will kick it up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court judgment will not come before the election. And no matter what the judgment is, it's going to make a lot of people very mad. It's possible that Marcos' opponents will not accept the result. It's likely, I would say that what we will see is a period of domestic instability.
0: And do you think this period of instability, if that is indeed what we're going to see, will have broader geopolitical ramifications?
1: It certainly will, John. The Philippines is a pretty important state in Southeast Asia, in the South China Sea, in the Pacific Ocean. It will be at the front line of any conflict between America and China. And that's just externally. Domestically, you know, it's it's hard to govern when you have... 25 to 30 percent of the country constantly blocking you. It might be bad for the economy. So, for all his promises of unity, the country will, from the very start of his administration, probably be marked
0: by pretty deep division. All right. Leo, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me, John.
3: I've been wanting to go to Guyana for a really long time.
0: Avantika Chokoti is an international correspondent for The Economist.
3: It's not very often the world gets a new oil producing country. And here you have a test case for the 21st century on whether we have a resource curse, on whether it's actually bad rather than good for a developing economy to suddenly get natural resources. There's a few things you need to know about Guyana. Most people I spoke to before I went out there, they really couldn't put it on a map.
1: Before the trouble, British Guyana was expected to get independence within perhaps a year. It already has home rule. Now, unless the strike can be settled quickly...
3: This is a country that used to be a British sugar colony. Right now, they produce barely any sugar. The country has a population of just 800,000 people. So you're talking the size of something between San Francisco and Seattle, and that's the entire country. Post-colonialism, this country had a very left-wing socialist government. It was incredibly unproductive. And as a result, lots of Guyanese left. There's more Guyanese living abroad than at home, in places like New York or Miami or London you really feel that this is a melting pot. When you're out and about in Georgetown, you hear a lot of great music. And chutney music is this really nice blend of Bollywood and Calypso. There's one song by Vicardi Singh, Never Gonna Leave. It really gives you a sense of how this is a multi-cultural community. It's a real melting pot of people who ethnically come from very different places. You have an Afro-Guyanese community and you have an Indo-Guyanese community. There's tensions between the two, but they do live alongside each other. The way the economy looks now, you have a tiny population, not hugely skilled for the specialised work of oil production. This is the only English-speaking country in this part of the world. They should be doing lots of trade with the US and Europe, but they really aren't. It's an economy that does come with its challenges. What really promises to turn this around is this oil find. When ExxonMobil first struck oil off the coast of Guyana a few years ago, as they say in the industry, they hit a gusher. To date, they found over 10 billion barrels of recoverable reserves in Guyanese waters. To put that into context, By the end of the decade, they'll be producing more than a million barrels of oil per day. For Exxon alone, one in 10 barrels of oil that they produce every day in 2030, they reckon they'll be coming from Guyanese seas.
1: To do that within 12 years of your discovery is unprecedented.
3: That was Alistair Routledge, who is the president of ExxonMobil in Guyana, What he told me was that the speed at which this oil producer found oil and got production going, it's been pretty staggering.
1: Even to go from the first discovery to first production in less than five was absolutely outstanding. There was some risk taken to get there, but the government of the day were really keen to see early revenues to show that they could develop the economy.
3: For the ordinary Guyanese person, they have been hearing about this oil find for quite a while now, and a lot of them are looking around and saying, hey, look, what has the impact been on the economy? So in some ways, especially when you're in the capital, when you're in Georgetown, you feel like oil has boosted this economy. Some local workers, particularly in the capital, they're making a lot more money than before, just driving taxis, working as waiters in the hotels working on building sites to build fancy new apartments and villas for the expat workers showing up in Guyana.
2: When I look at my employees back three years ago, a lot of them were wearing hand-me-down clothes.
3: That's Sean Hill, who manages Guyana's shore base, which is the logistics hub, the port that serves the offshore oil industry. And he talked me through how oil has brought prosperity to some people in the local economy. My car park was empty. Now it is full of nice cars. They're complaining because there's not enough car parking space. There's new motorbikes outside. People are turning up in brand new clothes to work every single day. So you can visibly see you know, that what we're doing here is impacting their lives. On a macro scale, the data shows that this is happening. So the economy grew 20% last year. It grew 44% in 2020. Guyana was the fastest growing economy in the world during the pandemic. What you have is a government that is promising to channel all of these petrodollars into development. They're saying they're going to use this money to build infrastructure, roads, schools, hospitals. And you have quite a bit of excitement over there. Of course, there's a number of things that could go wrong. The Guyanese people don't have to look far to see how oil can be a curse for an economy. To the west, they've got Venezuela. There, oil has bankrolled a corrupt socialist dictatorship. They've got Trinidad nearby, where oil exploration was great for a while, but it's also sort of led to crime and social unrest. So really, the big concern is Hey, are we going to have one big oil industry and the rest of the economy is going to be drained of resources, drained of qualified staff? Are we going to have this resource curse or are we going to be able to diversify?
2: We consider it to be of the
1: highest importance to ensure that we diversify the economy.
3: Ashley Singh, Guyana's finance minister, who I also interviewed there, he talked a lot about economic diversification.
1: I think we have the good fortune in Guyana that we do have a basis for real economic diversification. There is a very significant set of opportunities in gold production. Uh, We have the potential, there are about two or three companies looking at developing large-scale gold mines. That will be significant. Now you're right, mean oil is still going to be larger than even gold, but they will not be insignificant.
3: Whatever Mr. Singh says, the data isn't that hopeful. By the government's own estimates, the Guyanese economy as a whole will expand almost 50% this year. But if you take out oil, it's going to grow by less than 8%. Offshore oil is an incredibly specialized industry, so you only need a few maintenance staff. Most of the work is done by machines. You're not going to be sourcing from local Guyanese businesses because... Frankly, there's only a handful of companies around the world that produce pipes and widgets that are up to scratch. One really big risk that could see this whole oil boom turn sour is corruption. Guyana is a country with massive ethnic divisions between groups of African and Indian descent. Their politics is very cleanly divided between those two groups. The last election a couple of years ago turned pretty ugly, in part because these oil riches were up for grabs. Cronyism is rife. Local businessmen will all say it's not possible to win a big deal or a big job in the oil industry unless you've got pals in high places. Outside of Georgetown and inside of Georgetown, it feels like a whole different world. When I left the capital and I went over to the agricultural land in the pomeroon, I went to a big coconut plantation. You could see people there who were really sceptical about how the oil boom was ever going to benefit them.
1: My the name is Gary Gugand. I'm 55 years old and i have cultured agriculturally for years now.
3: When you're in Georgetown, everyone says to me, oh, there's these big hotels coming, here's this guy, he's got a contract for oil.
1: I'm not excited about the big hotels. I'm not excited about the big roadways. I'm not excited because the person to spend the money in the hotel is only a certain class of people could go there. The man that's working with the government can't go there. The man working with the private sector, some could go, some can't. What is the big excitement about it?
3: The truth is, it's a pretty funny time to become a petrostate. On one hand, the invasion of Ukraine, the war, does mean that energy prices have had an incredible boom of late. But in the slightly more medium to long term, we're in a world where everyone is trying to cut down their usage of fossil fuels. As one analyst said to me, in Guyana, the oil revenues are going to come fast, they're going to come hard, and they're not going to come for long. So it's not going to take very long for us to find out whether this is a case of resource curse or a massive oil boom.
0: This is the sound of a male koala calling for a mate. The tree-hugging, eucalyptus-grazing pouched animals are an icon of Australia. But they're also extremely vulnerable. They're frequently attacked by stray dogs, hit by cars as they cross roads between the ever more disparate forests they live in, or caught up in the bushfires that have hit those forests. Yet one of their greatest threats comes from a bacterium.
2: So no one is 100% sure how koalas got chlamydia, but a popular idea among scientists is that when... The British first came to Australia. They brought with them a ton of venereal diseases. They introduced syphilis and gonorrhea to Aboriginal communities. And not even Australia's wildlife was spared.
0: Eleanor Whitehead writes about Australia for The Economist.
2: The Europeans shipped in sheep and cattle and livestock infected with their own strains of chlamydia. And that over time, that jumped between species and koalas are now riddled with it.
0: And what does chlamydia do to koalas?
2: So the chlamydia that humans get is caused by different strains and it can be fixed pretty easily with antibiotics. But for koalas, it's a much more life-threatening problem. So it's caused by a different type of bacteria and the symptoms can be really severe. So the first sign of trouble is a pink eye. Chlamydia in koalas causes conjunctivitis and that can get super severe and it can lead to blindness and bad cases. So then another sign of trouble is what is called a wet bottom or a brown bottom and that's from a urinary tract infection that can become incredibly hard to treat if the infection gets up into a koala's kidneys. It can be fatal And the survivors are often made sterile by the infection as well. So it's a massive, massive problem for koalas.
0: How widespread is it?
2: Very, very widespread. So koalas live in populations. There are very few of them now in Australia that are totally free of chlamydia. And I spoke to a vet in Queensland, Michael Pine, who said that the epidemic's growing.
1: The areas where there's very high levels of chlamydia tend to be when there's high populations of koalas. So they come into contact with each other a lot more. Our local koala, one where we're doing our program, 80% of koalas we admit from that area come in with
2: chlamydia. So there's very high levels of chlamydia in there.
0: Why are they so susceptible to this disease?
2: So to start with, they have no natural immunity because it's been introduced relatively recently. They are also suffering from this added problem, which is a retrovirus that's spreading among them, which is in the same family as HIV. And it kind of knocks down their immune systems and makes the chlamydia more deadly. But it's also in the way that it's passed. So koalas don't just get chlamydia the normal way through sexual transmission. Mothers also pass it to their joey's. So their diet of eucalyptus leaves requires a certain gut bacteria to digest. And the mothers feed their joys this kind of poo, which contains the bacteria, but also contains chlamydia. So it's passing down between the generations as well.
0: And so what is the answer? Humans can take antibiotics. Can koalas do that?
2: Koalas can be given antibiotics, but they're incredibly hard to treat because the antibiotics interfere with the gut bacteria that they need to break down the eucalyptus leaves that they survive on. So that can cause more problems than they started with. It's often fatal. So they're really tricky to treat Michael Pine at Corumbin Wildlife Hospital. says trying to treat them is also very expensive.
3: We've
1: costed it out and it's about $7,000 per koala on average. To treat a chlamydia koala. I mean, just feeding koalas is a nightmare. You've got to choose, you know, feed them all different species of eucalypt. They're fussy and they always come with complications. In short, prevention is much, much better than the cure because the cure is really hard work.
2: But there is hope in the form of vaccines that are being developed in Australia. There are two Queensland universities that have been working on jabs for koala chlamydia. They've been under development for years now, but they're both now being trialled in animals in the wild across Queensland and New South Wales. So in one trial, a single shot vaccine is being given to up to a thousand koalas across Queensland and New South Wales. And early trials of that vaccine show that it's pretty effective in preventing the disease, about 70 percent effective And in another trial, hundreds more koalas are being given a double-shot vaccine. So that means wrangling koalas for a booster shot, but the hope is that it generates a long-term immune response. The scientists on that team say potentially enough to cover a koala's whole breeding lifespan. So mass vaccination is still a long way off. None of these jabs is registered or approved for commercial use, but the early results are encouraging.
0: So is mass vaccination the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel? Is that the idea, to vaccinate all wild koalas?
2: Well, I think that inoculating all wild koalas would be essentially impossible because none of this is easy. So you have to find the koalas. You have to wrangle them from trees and vaccinate them and then follow up to see if the vaccines are working. And koalas are not exactly conspicuous. So inoculating everyone in the world wouldn't be possible. But scientists don't think they'd need to achieve that to stem transmissions of chlamydia. They say that vaccinating just 10% of the breeding population in any given year might be enough to do that. And so it's hoped that with those kind of efforts, koalas are still facing tons of other problems from dogs and cars and habitat destruction. But if all other things were equal, then koala numbers could even rebound.
0: Let's hope so. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westren, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Our U.S. audio correspondent is Stevie Hertz. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alize Jean Baptiste. And assistant producer, Abasoye Osundairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday.